Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And How to Be Fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. The following podcast contains barnyard language and some adult content. So... Maybe listen on headphones if you're at work or around small children. Now, here's the show. Hey, Nora. Hey, Kristen. It has been one week since we lived by the joy of sex. And you know what that means. It's time for another By the Book mini episode. Your life is going down the drain. You're in so much pain. You need some help. Ooh, self-help. That's right. It's time for another Buy the Book epilogue. And since Jolenta is sick this week, we're joined by the great Nora Ritchie, our producer extraordinaire and theme song vocalist. Nora, thanks for being here. Hello. Hi, Kristen. And hi, everyone listening. This week, we're hearing from all of you out there about our most recent book, The Joy of Sex by Alex Comfort. But before we get into this week's responses, we're once again putting the book into historical context with the help of historian Trish Travis. And reminder, Professor Travis is a 20th century U.S. cultural and literary historian with a focus on gender and popular culture. Her subspecialties are the history of medicine with a focus on therapy, addiction, and recovery, and of course, self-help. AKA, she is our perfect person for this. Yes. So earlier in the week, Kristen, you and Jolenta sat down with Professor Travis, so let's listen to it. Professor Travis, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here oh, to talk about the boy. 70s. Yo. Excited is the word, I'm right? I'm stoked. It's my favorite decade. You can't spell excited without excited, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> All right. So 
we're talking about the joy of sex. Can you, as usual, put the decade into context for us? So before I say anything, and I've got a lot to say, (laughs) I want to make a very clear caveat first. I'm going to be talking a lot about sexuality, and I want to make clear that I'm talking here about straight sexuality. Um, Yes, just like the book. I am not like the book. That's not because there wasn't a queer sexuality at this time and that it's not relevant to this larger history, but since we're talking about the book and we want to understand where the book's coming from, I'm going to be keeping it on the straight and narrow for uh, for this episode, if that's okay. <laughs> All right. We that's understand. the way to put it. Thank straight you. and narrow. So I've got two words for this period, but I'm going to come to them later in the, uh, in the show. Because the first thing I want to talk about is building on something that I mentioned in the, in the last episode about the 60s. By the 1970s, who wouldn't want to think about sex as a change <laughs> of pace yeah. from the mayhem of the late 1960s? Violence, bloodshed, political degradation. I think everybody was ready for, to put it in Alex Comfort's terms, perhaps a palate cleanser or the next (laughs) course, maybe. Yes. (laughs) So that helps, I think, to explain the coming to prominence of this this book, is that people were ready to think about something else, maybe something that's a little bit more private Mm -hmm. than the politics of the 60s. At the same time, I also want to note that the 60s is still casting a long shadow over this book. And that's one of the things that makes this book from the 70s really still connected to and kind of a result of and a part of the 60s. If we think about the 60s in sex, the decade doesn't really start until 1965 with the landmark Supreme case Griswold v. Connecticut. That was the Supreme Court case that overturned state laws from the 1870s uh, prohibiting the sale of contraceptives and other obscene materials. <laughs> so obscene. <laughs> it was So the, the Comstock laws passed in the 1870s were used to prohibit the distribution of information about birth control, which is why they, although they were about obscene materials, they also were used to regulate access to birth control until, did I mention, 1965. Uh, this yeah. is recent days, people. So when Griswold overturned that limitation of access to birth control in 1965, that's the moment that really ushers in what we think of as the sexual revolution Mm -hmm. and paved the way for the kind of sex that we take for granted today, which is to say sex for pleasure without a crippling fear of pregnancy. Now, I want to be clear. Some women had had access to birth control um, prior to 65, but until that point, there really hadn't been a nationwide, systematic, convenient access to not just the pill, but to diaphragms and even to condoms. Yeah. Um, and without access to that stuff, you just can't have a sexual revolution. There's mm-hmm. a reason that people yeah. don't want to have it available now, um, because it facilitates access to sex for the purposes of pleasure. So the sexual 70s begin in 1965, and I would say, just to get this periodization nailed down, they really continue until the mid-1980s when the HIV crisis returns a sense of caution to heterosexual sex practices. So the 60s start in 65 and last for about 20 years, nice. which is, uh, and that includes the window in which The Joy of Sex was um, published. 
So I wanted to put that periodization of sexuality history out there um, as the beginning of this uh, thinking about the joy of sex because birth control is the key mechanism that needs to be in place in order for there to be joy in sex. But that doesn't account for the mindset behind this book. And I know that's the thing that you all had a little bit of trouble with. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we did. (laughs) (laughs) I think the critique of countercultural masculinity, which I think is what you all are making in your response to the book, is a reasonable one. What you all called in your commentary the woke hippie vibe, which, by the way, made me burst out laughing when I heard (laughs) it. Oh, thank God. Um, I think that when we look back at the 60s and at counterculture and the anti-war movement, to a lesser extent the civil rights movement, although that has its own uh, sexual politics and sexual dynamics in it, Mm. we see that rejection of corporate America, of imperialist war. We see a rejection of the oppression of black men. And we see among counterculture men, to a certain extent, a rejection of the subjugation of women. It's the to a certain extent that's the (laughs) tricky part. Yes. Yeah. Trying to explain why that happens, I think, is difficult. It's important to realize that people are taking steps in the time and place that they are at. Right. And... You all did a good job of trying to extend some courtesy to the limitations of men working in the 1970s. There is a point at which you think, how could these guys who think they're so woke still have been so blind? And this is a place where I think we do end up sort of defaulting back to an idea of guys may be able to critique their own privilege, but at the end of the day, do they really want to give it up? Mm. Yeah. Um, Last time I read a short excerpt from Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. I want to follow with another short quote today from the famous article by Pat Minardi of the Red Stockings Group, The Politics of Housework. This Mm -hmm. was published in 1970, um, and it begins by speaking in the voice of the liberated male. And I think that'll be useful for us to sort of understand where Alex Comfort is maybe coming from. So do we have time for a short quote? Oh, absolutely. We want to hear it. Okay, so Menardi, vocalizing on behalf of her male partner, writes, Liberated women, the first signals of all kinds of goodies to warm the hearts, not to mention other parts, of the most radical men. The first brings sex without marriage, sex before marriage, cozy housekeeping arrangements. You see, I'm living with this chick. And the self-content of knowing that you're not the kind of man who wants a doormat instead of a woman. After all, who wants that old commodity anymore? The standard American housewife, all husband, home, and kids. The new commodity, the liberated woman, has sex a lot and has a career preferably something that can be fitted in with the household chores, like dancing, pottery, or being a painting teacher. So the article goes on from there in a way that I think Phyllis Stiller would admire Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about what happens when you try to get your man who thinks like that to share the housework with you. But what's interesting about it to me is that it vocalizes that woke hippie vibe that you all talked about that really drives the joy of sex, which is the the new commodity. is perfect. Yeah. 
I've shed all my hang-ups, and I've got a woman who doesn't have hang-ups too. And she services me with the sex and concierge services that my mom gave me, but without any kind of the angst that goes around demanding that I do things around the house, like bring home the bacon or provide a good role model for the children. <laughs> so men in the counterculture were woke in some ways and still really committed to male privilege in others, right. including in the sexual realm, which you guys identified really clearly in the way that you all uh, talked about the book. So that leads me to my two words um, for the 70s and the joy of sex, and those are unfinished business. Oh, oh I love it. It's a you phrase. Com you combined the two words. Are the two words the two words are together <laughs> this time. I love it. I think what we really see in The Joy of Sex is that the 60s aren't done yet. Yeah. Um, the opening wedge of sort of busting up the nuclear family, compulsory heterosexuality, um, and the Leave it to Beaver image of, of the middle of the century, we've critiqued that pretty thoroughly. But critique is easy, governing is hard. And trying to figure yeah. out what changed sexual relationships within heterosexuality would look like, that project was unfinished in the 60s and through the 70s. And I think we'll maybe here be able to think a little bit more about it in, uh, in our next couple of episodes. But one thing I did want to bring up is that the other thing that the 70s saw, and it's a sort of doppelganger or mirror image of the joy of sex, is the publication of Our Bodies Ourselves. Right. Yes. Um, the Boston Women's Health Collective Guide to Women's Bodies, which focused a lot of its energies on reproductive health, but had a, paid attention to sexuality in ways that we might, it's easy to overlook now because there have been so many subsequent um, editions of the book. In 1973, the same year that The Joy of Sex appeared, it also came out from a mass market publisher in the same large format coffee table book. That's the edition that my mom had and the chapters in it on women's sexuality, on masturbation, on toys, on sexual pleasure. That's what I read growing up. And I think that that is as much of a piece of the 70s as the joy of sex. Why isn't that perspective present in Alex Comfort's book? Well, to the two words, unfinished business, <laughs> we could just add two more words, male privilege. Um, <laughs> But I think that, that it, I always like to think that it's a little bit more complicated than that because of the history of the moment. Right. And I, you know, I sometimes I feel like, especially with this one, I worry we didn't give it enough credit in sort of accidentally having to read it through, you know, the way we see the world, where I feel like had I been in the 70s, even though it's super heteronormative and super for penises, it is a step in a different direction that's refreshing, maybe opening a lot of doors. Oh my gosh, it's enormous. Yeah. It was so out there for its time. And one of the things that you really take away from looking at it is the fact that it looks so dated now is just a sign of how significant it was then. Right. Because it was a domino that toppled a lot of other dominoes that have fallen in the intervening years, such that now we look back at it and we think like, oh, that's so square and so ridiculous. <laughs> when mm -hmm. in fact, it was a mind blower okay. uh, at yeah. the time. 
just the mere idea of talking about pleasure and acknowledging that women had pleasure and deserved pleasure, mm -hmm. just the acknowledgement that women enjoyed sex yeah. was so huge mm. that I think that the marginalization of women's experience might not have stood out that much right. to mm. the garden variety American who was the reader of the book. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, well, thank you so much again, Professor Travis, for an insightful look at the joy of sex. Thank you. Fantastic. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but stay with us. When we're back, we'll be hearing from all of you out there who wrote in this week. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. We are back with listener responses to The Joy of Sex. And first up, we heard from listeners who have great memories to share about encounters with early editions of the book. Jolie says, Surprisingly, even my extremely uptight Catholic mother had this book. She kept it hidden in a drawer. I found it and was like, what the fuck? Mom is having sex? I found the drawings really unnerving, especially the guy. So much hair. Yeah, we've heard from a lot of listeners who have mentioned the hair. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of hair. And Nora, the listeners don't know this, but you are familiar with this book because you also encountered it on your parents' shelves, didn't you? Yeah, I was just like in my parents' bedroom one day, poking around, looking at their bookshelf, and I saw the joy of sex just sitting there. And of course, I was a curious, maybe even nine-year-old, and I opened it and I was like, whoa. This is this is wild, and do my parents really do this stuff in here? <laughs> so I don't even think my parents know that, but uh, yeah. I they know. might now. <laughs> they might now. My mom might be listening. <laughs> Ken says, I found this book in my college bookstore in 1972. The hairiness that seems to be the focus of comments now didn't seem so out of place then. Hair was still running on Broadway. It was a kind of westernized Kama Sutra and oddly structured like the joy of cooking. I don't know anyone who read the full text, but the bookstore copy that was not shrink-wrapped was very well thumbed. <laughs> I'm not going to say I've ever done that before, but yes, I did that. I, I did that a lot when I was younger. I'm like, oh, let me find that one naughty book in the library and just Ooh. keep going back to it again. <laughs> Kushlo says, the joy of sex was the first thing I used to check for in bookcases when babysitting as a teenager. Oh, interesting. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Confession, I did the same thing. <laughs> well, not just the joy of sex. I actually, I mean, gosh, I don't, I'm not going to mention anyone's names. 
the Andersons. <laughs> the no, many houses I babysat at, I did try to look for all the smut in the house. Yes, when well, I was like, you know, a teenager. Did others do that? Oh, of course. You kind of just want to like peek into this other family's world, and books are one way to do that. Yeah. So, um, Kushla, you're not alone. For a second, I'm like, is it just me and you? But if if Nora, you did the same yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, we all did. <laughs> um, now a number of you like us took issue with some of the joy of sex's messages. That's right. So Nikki says, I find it interesting how much weight was given to the orgasm in the book and that the goal should be to orgasm mutually. I have never had an orgasm despite loving the shit out of sex, and there was certainly no lack of trying. But for me, sex is about fun and feeling good and making my partner feel good. I found other things to enjoy about it rather than the elusive, for me, orgasm. I think it's a lot of pressure to put on people to achieve this goal when sex is so often about the journey. Anne puts a lot of pressure on women to fake it, especially when 10 to 15% of the female population cannot, under any circumstances, reach orgasm. Yeah, there are certainly people who just don't reach orgasm, and that doesn't mean that their experiences of sex are not valid or that they're doing it wrong. I mean, everybody's body is different. You like things, you don't like things, some things feel good, some things don't. And yeah, like she said, it's a part of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Here's a letter from somebody who wishes to remain anonymous. She says, It strikes me that the book didn't bother to acknowledge a diversity of age and health issues. My husband has high blood pressure and a stressful job, and it takes a considerable amount of effort and medications to get him erect enough for intercourse, which he prefers, and quite a bit of focus to get him to an orgasm. It doesn't help that I've had vaginal births, and all the kegels in the world, believe me I've tried, aren't going to help. If we divert from what he needs to do to get off, then he never gets there. It doesn't mean that he's always the focus and that he's oblivious to my preferences and needs, but it also means that the positions I prefer are literally not viable because they make the erection melt away. And that's a bummer, but it's also a reality, at least at the moment, for us. Well, anonymous. (laughs) I agree. I mean, Alex Comfort does not acknowledge that people come in all different stages, have different medical issues. It's um, really not on the table in this book. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing when you're just paging through it. It's like, this is for people who are in their 30s and of a certain kind of body type. And you might get the impression that his idea of what kind of bodies have sex doesn't include lots of people, including people of certain ages and stages, but also like races Mm -hmm. or weights or shapes or, you know, abilities or disabilities. He's not really thinking about anybody. He's kind of got a narrow view of, of what sex looks like and who has sex. Yeah, absolutely. So Michelle had some other gripes. She writes, I want to talk about the author's attitude toward kink. He says that people with a not in their psyche miss out on intimacy because they can only get off on saucier activities. How condescending. BDSM play requires huge amounts of trust, communication, and care, and has given me some of the most intimate experiences I've had. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think that Jolent and I both touched on this a little bit in the episode. His fixation on those things are deviant. If you do them too much, you should definitely enjoy them, but not often. Why should we trust his opinion of how often we should do certain things? Exactly. And it kind of sits in this idea of sex as something pure and that this stuff, this BDSM stuff, isn't accepted 
Which is lame. Let's be honest. Yeah. It's ridiculous. No, 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 no. No to that. If that's something you enjoy, if it makes you feel a greater sense of trust and intimacy with your partner, screw Alex Comfort. But no, don't screw him. But you know know what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff says, I'm glad you pointed out the homophobia and misogyny of the book, but I do wish you'd also pointed out the transphobia. Clearly, it never occurred to Alex Comfort that some people who identify as men have vulvas and some people who identify as women have penises. Our gender is not necessarily tied to our anatomy. Mine certainly isn't. And yet, I'm still in Comfort's target demographic of people who have so-called heterosexual sex. Yeah, I don't think he was thinking at all about, I mean, to go back to what we were just saying, (laughs) nor of like who's included, who's not included, what experiences are included, what experiences aren't included in this book. No, um, by a long shot. And I'm really glad that Jeff pointed that out because I think it's it's a really important point. Yeah. Now, you may recall in our episode, we asked all of you out there if you thought the misogyny of the book and the era are still prevalent in our culture. Mm. And a lot of you say it has not completely gone away. Mm. Yeah. Sophia wrote, male expectations about the penis being the center of the sexual experience, yeah, that's definitely still a thing. In the past 10 years of casual dating, I think there has only been one cis man that I haven't had to have the penis centricity talk with, a.k.a., Just because you, the man, had an orgasm does not automatically mean sex has to be over, especially if I have not had an orgasm. I don't need or expect one every time, but I do need or expect to be asked if I want to try and have one, and for my partner to be curious about what he could potentially contribute to that, both before and after his orgasm. Woo, amen, yes. Yes, yes, (laughs) clapping for that. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Michelle says, mainstream heteroporn seems to be a big factor now, affecting expectations about sex, especially with younger men who have had internet access since puberty. So, She's kind of seconding what Sophia said about maybe there's a lot of penis centricity in sex. I would add to that that it's not just affecting younger men and their perceptions of sex. It's affecting younger women, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, when a girl is exposed to porn, and by the way, there was a study that indicates that four out of five kids by the time they reach age 11 have watched porn already. (sighs) And if that's the case— you know, what messages not just are the boys receiving, but what are the girls receiving? What are they thinking is normal? Are they expecting that if a man thrusts, 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 that they're going to have screaming orgasms where they tear the sheets apart? Like, what what do they think is going to happen during sex? And what are they going to think is normal or abnormal about their own bodies if this is what their first exposures to sex are? Yeah. And then there's other elements as far as tender elements of sex or intimate moments or eye contact or a caring touch or or things like that that are just not a part of watching porn. And I think that's a whole other element that gets lost in that. So not that I'm anti-porn. I'm not anti-porn at all. I agree with you. I'm not (laughs) anti-porn either, but I do think that porn is not making love. Right. It's different. Yeah. Um, It's it's a different category for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So Jennifer thinks the issue is more than porn. She wrote, I think one of the most unhelpful things is the way Hollywood and romance books portray women and sex. I have seen so many movies where women are shown going into almost instantaneous, massive orgasms while having basic sex, aka missionary stuff. I also have read books where women have multiple orgasms when the only stimuli needed was the presence of a man's penis. (laughs) It makes me feel like I am not sexual enough because, frankly, I need a lot more to get me over the finish line. I have to remind myself sometimes I'm not broken— I am normal. Yeah. 
You know what's abnormal? A lot of those depictions. Like, here's a story from when I was younger. I remember my parents used to watch, like, soap operas. My mom loved soap operas, and then there were nighttime soap operas like Dallas and Falcon Crest and Knott's Landing and so on. And it seemed that people were constantly bringing women to ecstasy, like taking a stand-up shower together, like shampooing their hair, things like that. Where (laughs) as a kid, I'm like, is that what sex is? Like, you can actually just like, it's amazing how easily everyone just gets off. And that's not really the way it is usually. No, I mean, you talking about sex in the shower is also reminding me of shampoo commercials when women like they make them look like they're having these (laughs) orgasms what is it herbal essence you know I mean it's kind of silly when they do it but (laughs) yeah but in a way it's making fun of those old you know depictions of shower scenes I think in TV and movies where if you're going to have showers be a place of ecstasy I mean I actually have had more ecstasy probably shampooing my hair than shower (laughs) sex now that I think about it Uh, The joy of being clean. Yes. (laughs) But a lot of you out there believe things are getting better. Emily, who's in her 20s, says, My husband is a total egalitarian in the bedroom. I am one of the many women who doesn't have orgasms from penis-vagina sex, and in every sexual encounter, he is sure to give me an orgasm and does so with enthusiasm. He also has been very clear that he doesn't give a flying fuck if I've shaved or not shaved, if I'm in heels or in sweats. So with all that said, I hope that all the the back-in-the-day bullshit is fading. I think discussions around female pleasure and expectations under the sheets are changing for my generation and younger generations, and I believe we should be teaching our kids about pleasure, not just protection, Mm -hmm. in our sex talks. Yeah. Get you a husband like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Nora, when you were taught about sex, was pleasure something that was emphasized, or was it mostly about this is how people reproduce and this is how you don't reproduce by using contraception. And if you want to reduce your chances of STI transmission, you might try this and then goodbye, go out into the world, use your maxi pads. That was basically it. I mean, it was kind of academic in the way we got it in school. And then as far as um, my parents are pretty open if prompted about sex stuff, but when they gave me the talk, my mom basically said there were two times that her and my dad didn't use condoms, and that was uh, when me and my brother happened. So that was, how, that was the safe sex talk. Wow. Um, but at that time, pleasure wasn't really in the conversation. Yeah. And yeah. also, like, enthusiastic consent, I think, is something that is now very commonly taught in sex ed. But, I mean, I didn't know the term enthusiastic consent when I was younger. I didn't know the term consent. Mm. I mean, I don't even remember learning that. Yeah. I remember putting a condom on a banana. Mm. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that doing that too. me, but I didn't <laughs> learn the word consent, unfortunately. Ooh, and this next letter I really like. Um, it's from Marsha, who's in her 60s. She says, I don't know if it's the era we live in now or if it's that I and the men I date are more mature, but sex is so much better now for me than it was 35 years ago. There's less self-consciousness about talking about what works and what doesn't. There's an acceptance that our bodies are changing and that things that turned us on in the past may not turn us on now. Mutual pleasure is a given. I'd never want to go back to the kind of sex I had when I was younger. Whew, Marsha. I want to be in my 60s and having sex if that's how it is. I love. That's coming our way, Kristen. (laughs) Yeah. And, I mean, I have a friend, actually, who I think I've mentioned her to you, Nora. She's in her 70s. And she got married, and she said that was the best sex of her life when she got married in her 70s. And she was married one other time in her life in her 20s. And then she spent a lot of time— 
being a really fun single lady and dating a lot of men and having a lot of adventures. But in her 70s, she met a guy who was just terrific. They settled down. They got married. And I shouldn't say settled down because she has said to me that sex in the 70s is hands down the best sex. <laughs> so good. The best sex. She's like, just wait. You think it's good now. Wait till you're in your 70s. Zero inhibitions. All the fun. What do you have to wait for? Just go and get it. All the fun, and we don't give any of the fucks. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, We're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, we're going to do a lightning round of what all of you out there wish you'd known when you first started having sex. Stay with us. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at We're back with our lightning round of things all of you out there wish you'd known about sex back when you were first having it. Uh, Mind you, we've gotten hundreds of responses like this on our Facebook community. These are just a small handful of them. Laura said, I wish I'd known that not everyone is having it and that it's okay not to want it. For a long time, I thought I was broken because I didn't have any interest in sex and I tried to force myself toward it to be normal. Turns out there's a lot of versions of normal. Sahara says, I wish I'd known that sex doesn't necessarily equal a penis in a vagina, even if both partners have both those parts. Mike said, I wish I'd known that having sex with another man wasn't wrong or something to be ashamed of. Thinking it was wrong led to some poor choices early on. Amy says, I wish I'd known that I could masturbate and that masturbation is okay. I was married and had a child before I even explored that possibility. Lauren says, I wish I'd known that sex wasn't a bad thing. I literally thought sex was bad to the point that I asked my mom why a billboard had a swear word on it when I was a kid. The billboard was advertising a unisex salon. Dee says, I wish I'd known that the size and shape of the labia have nothing to do with the tightness of the vagina and that a tight vagina is often a tense vagina. Vaginas tend to expand and loosen when they are turned on. Mm -hmm. Louis said, Sex is way more enjoyable if you don't take yourself too seriously and you can all giggle at the weird things that happen because weird things do happen. Uh, That way, when someone loses their balance and falls off the bed, it will be hilarious instead of embarrassing. Nora, do you have anything else to add to this lightning round? Ooh, yes. I think one of the things that I wish I'd known is that you can direct people and tell them what you want and that is going to really improve your experience. And you can ask them what they want, how they like it. And, and it makes things hotter. Makes things so much hotter. Yes. Like, oh, you're doing that thing I like because I told you I like exactly. it. Exactly. Oh, so. Love it when you do that thing I told you to do. Yeah. So good. So good. I wish I'd known that it 
doesn't matter how I lose my virginity and to whom it's not going to ruin me. It's not going to label me. And virginity is a made-up concept anyway, mostly directed at women and our bodies. Yeah. And let's be honest, the first time is not necessarily going to be that great. It's going to get way better. <laughs> yes. That's another thing I wish I would have known. <laughs> I didn't know how bad first-time sex was. And then, like, the older I've gotten and everybody else, you know, we open up, we talk to each other. I don't know anybody who had great first-time sex. No, I didn't. It was fine. I kind of was like, oh, finally. I can, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not a virgin anymore. <laughs> Well, there are loads more stories and comments on our Facebook community. Read them all at facebook.com slash groups slash btbpod. And thank you to everybody who wrote and called in this week. I mean, the stories were really fantastic. People were being very vulnerable, sharing things they were embarrassed about, sharing things they'd learn, sharing questions that they have. So thank you to everybody who has been a part of the conversation this week. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And now, Nora. Oh, what time is it? It's time. It's the time when we announce next week's book. Our next book is The Dance of Anger, A Woman's Guide to Changing the Patterns of Intimate Relationships by Harriet Lerner. Will the dance be the Macarena? Please say we finally get to line dance. What if I prefer singing over dancing? I want to sing like you, Nora. Ah, thank you. Well, you'll have to listen next week to find out. And that's it for this mini-sode of Buy the Book. Huge thanks to our fabulous production team at Stitcher, our producer, vocalist, and this week's co-host, Nora Ritchie. Yes, stop it. And our engineer, Andy Christens. Chris Bannon is our chief content officer, and Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Thanks also to Joshua Mills, who helps engineer our interviews with Professor Trish Travis. And thanks to Nate Wyda, who composed our theme song, and, of course, Jared Arnold, who produced this season's new version of the theme song. Reminder, also check out our other show, We Love You and So Can You, for advice, makeovers, and lots of love. And please stay in touch. Let us know if you've lived by the joy of sex and send us any questions or suggestions for future books for us to live by. Our email address is kristenandjolenta at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at G at kristenmeinzer, at Nora underscore Richie <laughs> underscore, or at ByTheBookPod. <laughs> And you can leave us a voicemail. We love hearing your beautiful voices. The number is 302-49-BOOKS or 302-492-6657. And as always, we love it when you rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps other people to find the show. You know, people are looking. They're seeing a good review. They're thinking, I want to listen to that show. That good review could be from you. (laughs) And if you haven't already, tell a friend about the show. Until next time, I'm Nora Ritchie. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, my God. I'm cracking up that my Twitter was in there because I, like, don't tweet. Well, I tweet too about, bad. All I do is tweet about buy the book on Lady. Like, people are like, this is the worst feed ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like retweeting an episode. <laughs> Stitcher. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 